Well, good morning to you all. It's been a while, but uh, it's good to be back here and see a lot of familiar faces um, and be able to fellowship together in God's Word today. Can you guys hear me at the back? Yes, great. Well, um, our passage today is going to come from Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 is where we'll be today. Acts chapter 2. Okay, are we all there? Great. Great. And we're going to look at uh, verses 42 to verses 47. Verses 42 to verse 47. I'm sorry. I'm confused today. <laughs> I'm actually in Acts chapter 4 from verses 32 to 37. Acts chapter 4 from verse 32 to 37. Okay. All right. So it's just one page that you turn on the other side. Okay. All right. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 37. And I will read the text. We will pray. And then we will get into God's word. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each one as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here ends God's reading for today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word that is true, that is rich. Thank you for your word that guides us, that gives us the mind of Christ, your mind. And I pray, Lord, that we may have the same mind as yours. We may conduct ourselves in the household of God, your church, in the way that you call us to. And I just pray, Lord, that this morning, Lord, your word speaks to us. I pray, Father, that people may forget the man standing before them today, and they may see Christ and see your word. I ask and pray this through your son's name. Amen. Well, we come to a very familiar text this morning that is an encouragement in so many ways of how the early church started and how they responded to, in the midst of persecution, 
The context of our text today is that Peter and John would have healed a lame beggar and they would have used that opportunity to preach the gospel. As they are doing that, many people leave the temple and they come and they see this wonder of hearing that there's this man who has been healed, who was very familiar to the people at that time. And then they come and they hear God's word being preached. Now many believe in the gospel and many are saved. But because this is happening in the context of the temple, there's some people who are not happy about this and that's the religious rulers. They're not happy about this and they end up arresting Peter and John. They put them in jail. And the next uh, day, these two men stand before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council and the man who had been healed was also with them. And they examined. Then they are ordered not to preach again about Jesus. But then they refuse. Chapter 4, verse 21, says that they are threatened again, but then they are released on account of the people. So the, the religious rulers are afraid of the people, and then they end up saying, okay, just go, but do not preach again about Jesus. And what is the first thing that these disciples do? They go and they report to their fellow brothers and sisters what had just happened. And what is the response of this early church? They pray. They pray to God. They pray to the God who owns everything, the God who, was, who prophesied in Psalm 2, that the Gentiles will rage and the peoples will oppose the Lord's anointed one, who is Jesus Christ. They prayed. And they prayed that God would take note of these threats that had just happened to the disciples. And they submit everything to him in verse 29. But they also prayed for God's grace to speak his word with confidence and to speak his word with boldness. Now, no doubt, even though these threats were directed at Peter and John, no doubt that these threats were by extension to the whole believing community that had just started in Jerusalem. No doubt that everyone didn't feel safe. Everyone didn't feel safe. It's much like if Right now, in our country, a threat is made to all the pastors to not preach God's word. By extension, you would also feel threatened. And this is what's happening. They don't feel safe. Their lives and their jobs are now at risk in this very Jewish community. Now, when things are hard, if you can imagine that, when things are hard, when your life is threatened, when you have no security or food for tomorrow, if you were one of these believers, what would have been your natural inclination? I don't know about you, but I would have been tempted to look out for myself now. <laughs> to look out for myself, to look out for my family, make sure that I'm okay, make sure that they're okay, because things are not looking good. But I'd like us to see that when things are hard and when the church faced persecution, it became even more imperative for them to look outside of themselves and be united for the sake of the gospel instead of looking inside and then being selfish and saying, I need to look out for myself. The greater the hardship and persecution, as we see in this book, the greater the call they felt 
to unity and love. Love for one another. Love for one another. Love for one another is seen greatest when there is every reason not to love. And you still do it. And you still do it. It is seen in the gospel. This love is taken from the, from, from the gospel and seeing the example of Christ in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When there was every reason for him not to die for us, he died for us. It is seen every day in our relationship with God in that while we still struggle with sin in this body and offend a holy God, he still gives us breath, right? He still gives us breath. He's still generous. And he gives us blessings we do not deserve. And we just heard today about the, the beautiful colors of the flowers. And, and, and I was so thankful for that. And I, also, I so appreciated your prayer, by the way. And just hearing uh, the sound of the birds. I believe you said the crispness of the clouds and all of that. It was, it was very poetic. I loved it. But if you think about that, we don't deserve that. We don't. But God still loves us every day. And he still is gracious to us. It is sin in the Christian, in that when things are hard, taking the example in the gospel and in our Lord and God every day, in the Christian, that when things are hard, when we have every reason, sinful as it may be, to just look out for ourselves, we think of, how is my brother doing? How is my sister doing today? Do they have food? Are they warm tonight? Do they have a place to sleep? Is their heart anxious to me? The passage before us today is about how the church strived for unity when it was hard, when it was really hard. They strived for unity when it was hard by loving each other, by caring for each other. Look at how it begins in verse 32 as we get to our text, verse 32, Acts chapter 4. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The community of believers are united in the facing of persecution. It says that they were one. When he's talking about one heart, one soul, that's talking about unity. Do you know why unity in the body is so important? Two reasons. Two reasons. Unity in the body is, is important because it points to the unity of the Godhead. It, it is such a picture of the Godhead, of, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being so united. They are one, but they are united. In other words, God takes unity so seriously that he wants his church to mirror who he is every day. Secondly, unity is so important because it is a testimony to the unbelieving world. It is a testimony to the world of the power of the gospel in the hearts of undeserving sinners like you and I. Now, these two reasons of the Godhead and the testimony to the world, really these are captured in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 20 to 21, when Jesus himself facing the persecution of the cross he prioritizes this in his prayer in John 17, verse 20 to 21. You don't have to turn there, but he prays and says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, talking about his disciples, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Listen to this. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. You see the Trinity aspect? 
that they also may be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. That's the second reason there of unity. What is happening in Acts 4 is an answer to Jesus' prayer that he prayed the night before he died, before he suffered the greatest suffering anyone could ever have gone through and anyone has ever gone through. When he stood in the place of sinful men, sinful people, to face the wrath of a holy and angry God and to satisfy that wrath. They were of one mind, they were of one soul. That phrase, one mind, one soul, was typically used in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy. Several times it points to our devotion to God. Perhaps the most familiar text would be Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You and I are called not only to be of one mind and soul, not only in terms of our love towards God, but also horizontally in our love towards one another. Why? Because we're united in Christ. We have the same Lord, and we've been saved by the same death. And that should transcend culture, right? As long as you're a Christian. That should transcend culture. That should transcend any racial differences, any character differences. We are one. But how did they show this unity? How did the church show this unity? I'd like for us to see this morning two ways that the church evidenced unity. Two ways that the church, the early church evidenced unity. The first way that the early church evidenced unity was that they shared with one another everything that they had. So unity is evidenced by responding, that's the first way, by responding to the needs of your brothers and sisters. Unity is evidenced by responding to the needs of your brothers and sisters. That's the first way that you have the early church evidencing unity. Responding to the needs of your brothers and sisters. Look at the second half of verse 32. In Acts chapter 4, and it says, And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Do you see that? What Luke is doing, Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, is repeating the truth that was evident at, from Pentecost. When he said in Acts 2, verse 44 to 45, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all as anyone might have had need. The picture we see here is that of freely sharing with your whole heart the blessings that God has given you. The picture is not of abolishing any property rights that you're not allowed to own anything anymore, right? That's not the picture. That you can't own a house, you can't own a car, that's not the picture. In fact, later on, it becomes evident that this is not the picture when you look at the next text of the, the, the very familiar um, story of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that story, right? And then Peter comes and then he, he, he says in Acts chapter 4, or 5 verse 4, and he says that, hey, didn't, didn't this already belong to you? No one forced you to sell this, right? So this is not a picture of you can't own anything or you're commanded that you are not supposed to own anything. The picture there is of how they were freely sharing with their whole heart the blessings that God had given them. 
So it is not that, it is not that you, 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 you can't own anything, but an understanding of, hey, we are united in Christ. And when one member of the body is suffering, the whole body is suffering. That's the picture. The whole body is not well. It is a picture which is the outworking of Philippians 2 verse 3 that says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. That, hey, brother, sister, you are more important than me. That's how I would regard you because we are united in Christ. That I am not to be selfish in the body, but rather consider my brother is more important than myself. It was an outworking of what John would later write in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, when he says we need to be intentional in love. And he says in, in, in 1 John 3, verse 16 to 17, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? This is what John has. It is a contradiction to the gospel for a believer to say, I understand what God has done for me. And yet, they close their hearts to the needs of their brother or their sister when they're in a position to help. Listen, to the extent that the first church went to evidence this unity by responding to the needs of their brothers and sisters, look, look at Acts 4, verse 34, as we continue. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each one as any had need. Now, this need could have arisen, the context we know is from persecution, or just maybe just difficult circumstances in life. But what is clear is that there was an intentional awareness of where people were in life, right? This is, this is the, oh man, George, George has just lost his business, right? Or, or Tendai has no food at home. But this takes a love that only the gospel can give. This takes an intentional love and an intentionality on the part of the church. It is a love that pursues, for you to be at this stage as a church, it is a love that pursues and asks pointed questions beyond the just, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then, you know, we go about our day. But goes as far as asking, hey, how, how are things at home with you? Do you have enough food? Do you have enough warm clothes? How is your marriage? Like specific questions. When we become believers in the same family, we do not need permission. It, the moment you say, I'm a believer, and this person is another believer, you don't need permission to ask some of those questions. You don't need permission to love, basically. Right? And sometimes we feel like we need permission to, to love and ask some of those questions that, that, that are rooted in the gospel. But the moment we say that we are, we're Christ's people, we, are, we have been saved by the same blood, we're called to love intentionally. Proverbs 3, verse 27 to 28 says, Do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. 
Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. That's saying the Bible. But we do that sometimes. We have the, we can, we have the, 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 the ability and the resources to do that, but we don't do it. Come back tomorrow when you could do it today. But this goes the other way as well. Loving intentionally isn't just one-sided of asking and, 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 and being involved in someone's lives and asking those pointed questions. It is also being intentional to allow others the blessing of loving you in Christ. And many struggle with this, but it is not right. Well, what does that look like? It is a relationship of love that goes beyond the surface answers of when you're asked, how are you doing? It's not just, I'm fine, right? When you're not fine. It is, a, it is, it is going beyond the surfacey answers that at the very least contradict the truth of the gospel with a lie. Because every time you're just saying, I'm fine, and you're not fine, remember, you are lying. You are lying on how things really are. But on another level, it is the sin of pride. And it is the sin of hypocrisy that shows a face of what really isn't true. Some of you may say, well, oh, well, I just don't want to be a burden. Right? I just don't want to be a burden to people. But listen, we've got to shift our understanding of what burden means. Burden in the world is different from burden among Christians. Okay. We are meant to be a burden to each other as believers, in a good way. We've got to grasp that reality, in a good way. You are meant to be a burden to me as a Christian, and I am meant to be a burden to you. Galatians chapter 6 is helpful in this. The context in Galatians chapter 6 is that of sin, but the principle applies here. And in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, it says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. But listen to verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love. Love for God, love for each other. So it is a blessing to me, if I redefine burden, it is an opportunity for me to fulfill the law of Christ by loving you. So I welcome that burden because Christ wants me to love and to grow in love. That's not how the world defines it. For the world, it's like, oh, this is such an inconvenience. Right? This is, I don't want to do this. I don't want this on my shoulders. I don't want, oh, always, right? That's, that's the world. But for a believer, it's, praise the Lord, I get the opportunity to love my brother, to love my sister. So, X4 then gives an example of someone who evidenced this unity by sacrificially responding to the needs of his brothers and sisters. Look at verse 36. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here is a man, and we will hear more about him in Acts chapter 5, because um, the whole backdrop of Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira is, is in contrast to what Joseph would have done, Right? But we hear of a man who responded to the needs of the church. 
And his name was Joseph by birth, and he was also called Barnabas. So Joseph was his birth name, and then he was also called Barnabas. And Barnabas, most likely that name was given to him either when he came to faith or uh, sometime after, but it speaks more of his character of being someone who was an encouragement to the body. This is the same Barnabas you later on hear about in Acts chapter 13 when Paul is sent out from Antioch. Remember that passage? That's the same Barnabas to plant churches during the missionary journeys. Now, there's a reason he's put here. He was an encouragement to the church. And I think of Barnabas and I am encouraged. I think of Barnabas and my mind has to go to the testimony of the church. Or your mind even has to go to the testimony of the church among you. That there are some people that are such an encouragement to the body in terms of how they promote unity by being aware of the needs that are there. And just as an encouragement to you, Kingsmith, your testimony has gone out. As I know, I know even when you pray, and each time I come here, I hear this phrase, our little church, right? <laughs> you like calling yourselves that. But you have such a big testimony in terms of your love for those who are outside and the needs that are there. We continuously hear of your love towards perhaps those who are, in, 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 who are, who are, who are old or those who are, who are struggling, who are poor, and you have these packs going out. It is Kingsmead, right? Who does that? Yes, okay. Right church, right? <laughs> right? So it, it's such a blessing, and, 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 out, and, and, and you can put yourself there as a church where it says, and Barnabas was such an encouragement, and Kingsmead was such an encouragement. And perhaps among you, you have names in your minds that you say, man, I would have put this person in there. They were such an encouragement because they were aware of the needs of the body and they promoted the unity of the church. This is pleasing to the Lord. It's pleasing to the Lord. It mirrors Christ. It mirrors the gospel. It's a testimony to the world. So that first point was the long point, by the way. Unity is evidenced by responding to the needs of your brothers and sisters. Right? As we see this pattern in the church. Secondly, and finally, unity is also evidenced in the church by being faithful to the gospel. Being faithful to the gospel. Now, sandwiched between meeting the needs of the body, right, in unity, um, we, we, we read from verse 32. You see, Verse 32 talks about the needs that were in the body. Verse 34 to 36 talks about meeting those needs and gives that example of, uh, of, of, of Joseph, of Barnabas, right? But there's a verse that I skipped. Did you notice that verse? It's verse 33, right? And it's like a sandwich that's there. The top part is meeting the needs. The bottom part is meeting the needs. But there's a middle part of verse 33 that's there that is so important. And, when you, and it kind of hangs or, or gives a, a, a foundation for what is on top and what is at the bottom. Verse 33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. The heart of the church, being the church, was the gospel. It's the gospel. The apostles continued to preach and to give testimony to the resurrection of 
the Lord Jesus. This is exactly the opposite of what they've just been told by the Sanhedrin, right? We're going to let you go, but do not name the name of Jesus anymore. But they prayed for boldness. And here we see God granting that prayer. When you consider the passages that speak about the gospel in Acts, the great emphasis is, is on the resurrection of the Lord. So when you read there and it says that in verse 33, they were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that's talking about the heart of the gospel. As Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, there is no, there's no hope. The church was united in the gospel going out. That was the priority of the church, and this is still to be the priority of the church. Now, unity is going to be evidenced by believers having the same mind that the gospel ought to be priority. Now, when you consider church, you're going to have church swinging on two extremes oftentimes, and that's sad. That's really sad. You can have a church that swings on the one extreme of focusing on how it's all about love. Okay, are we together? How it's all about love, how it's all about, you know, uh, being kind, right? Meeting needs, right? You can have a church that, that, that focuses so much on that that the gospel really is buried. And then you can have a church that swings to the other end, extreme of the pendulum, where you have, hey, it's all about the gospel, right? It's all about the gospel, preaching the gospel, and, but they don't meet the needs of one another in the body. Now, now both are not biblical. And we've got to examine our churches in that light. Which end are we swinging to the extreme of? Because the Bible says that we, sh we should have both. We should have a church that meets the needs among one another as a testimony of, of, of the gospel of unity. But we should also be very, very strong in the gospel. That the gospel is preached week after week at this pulpit. The true gospel of Jesus Christ. The moment that the gospel stops being preached at this pulpit, this church stops being a church. And it ends up being just a social gathering, right? You won't be any different from any other social ministry or social organization. What makes the church the church is the gospel and faithfulness to the gospel. But we need this. These two work hand in hand of meeting the needs and being faithful to the gospel. Now, I pray that God would help our churches, and this is something we're working through at our church as well, right? At our church, we, we've just been convicted of saying, hey, we, we, we need to, we, we're, we, we feel we're strong on the gospel, but we're weak on this area. And God, please help us. Help us not to neglect this. As we look at examples of people like you, right? And, and we're like, Lord, help us to, to grow in that. So, Paul 
or rather Luke then puts this right at the center and says that with great power, right, with great power, and the great power there is referring back to um, what would have happened earlier in Acts chapter 2 of being controlled by the Spirit. They're doing this in the power of the Spirit. And it says that they were doing this as well with abundant grace in verse 33. At the end of verse 33, abundant grace was upon them. This is grace from God, but also grace that they were receiving from the people, the general public, because of how the, 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 the community of believers was showing unity and meeting the needs of each other. So may God help us as we strive for unity. I'd love for King Mid, King's Mid to be known as a church that is united, right? Not that I have, it's not like your comment of uh, Joyce Meyer, of like she was now thinking, uh, no, 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 it's not that. So don't spend two weeks thinking about that. What are people saying, okay? This is, this is, this is just an exhortation and encouragement that this church be known as united in the face of when there's persecution and when there's no persecution. But how do we evidence this unity? We evidence it by being aware of the needs for one another. How do we evidence this unity? We evidence it by being strong on the gospel and united around the gospel. That's the pattern we see in the book of Acts. May you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the early church and help us, Lord, to exemplify that pattern in our churches. And I do pray, Lord, that we may introspect, we may really examine ourselves and examine our churches to see where we are. If you're pleased with us, Jesus, this is your church. You are the head of your church. And we want you to be pleased with us. So help us to be faithful to the pattern you have set for us. Help us to be faithful to the gospel. Help us to be faithful to loving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for this church and the testimony it has held. And I pray, Lord, that you may help them to excel still more in their love for one another. I ask and pray this through your son's name. Amen.